probably help if I turned it on. My name's Lee Hinman. It's my honor to read for you this morning. Um, we participate, my wife and I, we're part of the uh, cafe team out there with coffee and donuts. We participate in a small group. Uh, we both participate with the men's and women's uh, classes or schools, whatever you want to call them, in the evenings. And I'm going to read for you First Revelations, verses 1 through 8. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants the things that must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant John, who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy. And blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it, for the time is near. John, to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come, and from the seven spirits who are before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, the ruler of kings on earth. To him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom, priests to his God and Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. And all the tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. Even so, amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is, who was, and who is to come, the Almighty. Thanks, Lee. My name is Zach Thompson. I'm on staff here at Calvary Bible Church. And uh, this morning we're starting our series in the book of Revelation that's going to carry us through to the end of the year. And now just about every resource that I use, whether that's a podcast or a video or a book, commentary, article, whatever it was, they all started off with, with one of three different ways. So they either make a joke about how hard it is to read the book of Revelation, or they, they apologize for how hard it is to read the book of Revelation, or they'll make some sort of comment about how some people are overly infatuated with this book while others completely avoid it. They all kind of start off the same way. So I thought I'd give you the whole gamut and start off with all three of them. And so now you know. Uh, this, the, uh, a few of the, the recent sources actually pull from this, this poll, the, this poll that they did of pastors and people who attend church. And the question, uh, there were three questions on it. What is the series, pastor, that you would least like to preach on? Here's the book of Revelation. What, what is the series, you who attend church, you would most like to hear your pastor preached on? It was the book of Revelation, exactly right. What is the book all Christians are least likely to read on their own? It was again, the book of Revelation. It's, it's a hard book to understand and there's a lot of experience and expectation that we come with a series like this. And so because of that, this morning, we're gonna spend our time looking at what do we need to know about the book before we can fully dive into it? What do we need to know about how do we read a book like Revelation so that we can better apply it to our lives? 
The hope is that if things go well this morning, that uh, when people show up, uh, visit us in later weeks, and uh, we can point them to, hey, go back to week one of this series so you can understand how are we reading it, how are we understanding this book. And if things don't go well this morning, well, I fully anticipate being attacked before I even get to the car, and so what does it matter anyways? So I want to I want to focus uh, on on a few different things as we're starting off our series in this book, and, and the first the first thing that I want to center our time around is why do we avoid this book? Why do we avoid the book of Revelation? As as that poll said, pastors don't really want to preach on it. People don't really read it on their own. Why do we avoid the book of Revelation? In her book called Blessed uh, by Nancy Guthrie, which is a terrific companion resource I would recommend to, to anybody. It's, it's a really good, clear reading of the book that's helpful for, for showing how we understand it and how we apply it to our life. It's, it's a great companion piece. So in her book Blessed, Nancy, Nancy Guthrie gave four reasons why we might avoid this book. I, I might have changed the wording just a little bit. But the first reason why we avoid the book of Revelation is we don't get it. We try to read it, we try to make sense of it, and it's hard. It's hard to understand what it's talking about. There's, there's images all over the place. There, there's symbols going on. There's numbers. There's a lot of numbers all throughout it. And, and so maybe we've tried to read it before, but, but we just couldn't make sense of, of what it's saying. There, there's all of this symbolism throughout. How do we understand what these images mean? And, and then you get people on this other side who look at the images and how difficult it is to understand the symbols that are going on. And some people will look at the book of Revelation and say, there's actually no symbols. The way that it's written is exactly how it's gonna take place. It, it, you get this dichotomy of, oh, you're, you're reading the Bible symbolically? Well, I'm reading the Bible literally, which means there's no symbols. Now that's really hard to say because there's symbols all over the Bible. I mean, I think of uh, the book of Isaiah in chapter 40. It says, those who wait on the Lord will mount up on wings like eagles. Now, I, I don't know how to tell you this, but I've never seen anyone sprout wings before. So that either means that I've never met a real quick Christian or that passage is being used symbolically. Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. Yet he's famously a carpenter. He never worked as a shepherd. This is acting like a symbol to us. Even the book of Revelation, it constantly talks about Babylon. Babylon is this entity against God's people. But Babylon didn't exist as a nation at this time. It doesn't exist as a nation right now. It's being used symbolically. Even uh, in the very beginning, uh, it's, it, Jesus, uh, Jesus as, as he's talking in chapter one, is giving these, these pictures about these, these seven stars and seven lampstands, and he sets up for us for what to expect throughout the book of Revelation by explaining to us what that symbol means. Revelation chapter one, verse 20 says this. It says, as for the mystery, it says mystery. As for the symbols, these pictures that are hard to understand of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands. Well, the seven stars are the angels of the seven church, churches. And the seven lampstands are the seven churches. This symbol, here's what it means. And so the idea is that for us to be able to understand what's going on, to actually read the Bible literally, which just means as it's true, as it was intended to be written, the only way to actually read the Bible literally is to let symbols be symbols. 
That it's not this dichotomy, uh, dichotomy between the two where it's, I am reading the Bible literally. Then where are your wings, bro? Like we have to have both in order to understand how the Bible is written. We have to employ both literal understanding and symbolic understanding to read this book well. Now that's hard. It's hard. How do, how do we do that? How do we know what is a real picture? How do we know what's a symbol? How do we know what the symbols are actually supposed to mean? We we're told in verse 20, but we aren't always told what that is. And we don't want to get, how do we read this passage? How do we read this book? Here's a way too quick answer that we will unpack over the, the coming weeks, but just a, a one little cheat sheet answer of how do we interpret the symbols that are in the book of Revelation? It's go to the Old Testament. Uh, we, we handed out those uh, scripture journals on your way in of the book of Revelation. Uh, grab one if you haven't already. I hope they're helpful for you. I know some of you really like those, uh, but you have to have your Bible with you every week because we need to look at what is the source of what we're seeing. Like even as we read uh, uh, verse 20 there, there's this incredible picture. Okay, cool. The church is our lampstand. That's a great symbol. But we only fully understand why John is using that symbol when we go to the Old Testament where he got it from, namely Zechariah chapter four. More on symbols all throughout this series. So why do we avoid it? We don't get it. And what's the second reason why we avoid it is all the controversy that surrounds this book. There are so many different ways to read and interpret it. And it's, and it's become a thing to where some people arrive at an understanding of what the book of Revelation says and how do we read it. And then assume that their answer is the only possible answer to this book. And so people who don't agree with them get told that they're wrong or they're not Christians or have even been called demonic in the past. Those are some high stakes. It's, it's a hard book to understand. And if we get it wrong, we don't want to be called those things. So maybe it's just best if we avoid the whole thing. Now, I want to make it clear about what our focus of this series is going to be. Our focus as we're looking at the book of Revelation is to see what is clearly told to us, what is clearly revealed in Scripture, and to shake off anything else that imposes upon Scripture. And so in that, there's going to be disagreement in this room. There's going to be people sitting next to each other in the same life group who don't read the details of a passage in the exact same way. You might disagree with me on how to read a passage, and that is okay. In fact, it's better than okay. That's what we need. We need people who disagree on these things that are, that are hard to understand so that we can have a better understanding of the text, so that we can be more faithful to reading Scripture. Yes, there's controversy around it, but we lose what the purpose of a church is if our posture is, I'm right. I'm the only one. You have to line up with me, otherwise you're wrong. That's not how we read this book. The next reason why we avoid it is uh, it has a focus. A lot of the language is focused on suffering and persecution. And then the, the fourth and final reason why we avoid it is, is similar, so I'll, I'll lump them together. There, there's a lot of focus of judgment and blood and wrath within this book. As we read about these things, suffering and judgment, they're not fun to read, and so we might just avoid it because of that. Now, there's, 
there's there's a lot that we'll unpack about the context as we go throughout the series, but uh, in explaining why the language is what it is. But but again, just a really quick overview answer. Uh, as we read the book of Revelation, it's important to remember a, a basic rule of reading the Bible. It, it's a rule that's true of wherever we find ourselves in the text of Scripture. Uh, it's always going to be true. And the rule is the Bible is not written to us but it is written for us. The Bible is not written to us, but it is written for us. The idea is that we are not the direct recipients of what is written down in the Bible, but it does have a huge benefit for us. It shapes our lives, it shows us how we live, but we aren't the original audience of it. So who is the original audience of the book of Revelation? Well, it was read for us earlier. Um, do have a lot to get through. So I'll just read the, the first bit of this, this verse. In Revelation chapter one, verse four, it tells us who the original audience was. It says, John, so John is the author, he's writing it, to the seven churches that are in Asia. So who's the, this book written for? Well, it's written for these seven churches that are in Asia. Asia Minor, it, it was also called at the time, it's basically modern day Turkey. So these seven churches are the ones that John is directly writing to. And what we know of the context of these churches at the time is things were awful. They were facing tremendous persecution and, and hardships and, and people were doing wrong by them all for following Jesus. They were losing welfare and livelihoods and even their lives for being faithful to Jesus. And it's in that context that John writes this letter to them to help them understand what is going on. And that in that there's this this pull that they're feeling to compromise, to, to give up on their Christianity. So John is writing to them to give encouragement. The entire purpose of this book is to provide clarity and comfort and transformation. And so John is writing to these seven churches to provide clarity, comfort, and transformation. Now, as we say, it's, it's not written uh, to us, but it is written for us. So there is an impact that we receive because of this book. And that gets to my second overall point to this. Why do we need the book of Revelation? Why do we need this book? We, as in Calvary Bible Church and Thornton, the ones who aren't, aren't on John's mind as he's writing this, but are the huge beneficiaries of what John has written. Why do we need this book, especially in the culture that we're in and the lives that we're living now? Well, as we said, it's not written to us, but the purpose of the book is the same purpose for us. This be the benefit that we receive from this book is that we too receive clarity, comfort, and transformation. The purpose of this book is to provide for, uh, for us as well clarity, comfort, and transformation. Those in the first century as well as us. Now, we might look at that phrase and, and maybe laugh a little bit at the first one. How on earth does Revelation provide clarity? I mean, there, there's all of these images all over the place. There, there's so much confusion about what's, what's happening in there. How on earth does this provide clarity? Well, I, I, wanna, I wanna get to, uh, back to one of the verses that was read for us earlier. Uh, right, right off the beginning, as it's talking about uh, the, the focus of this passage, uh, in verse three, we, we get this really beautiful verse. It says, blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy. Hey Lee, things are looking good for you. You just read for us, You're doing great. Uh, and blessed are those who hear, that's all of us. Look at that, we're already doing really well in this series. Blessed are those who read aloud the words of this prophecy and blessed are those who hear 
and who keep what is written in it for the time is near. It says, blessed are those who hear slash read these words and keep what it is that they say. It would be a tremendously cruel God to write to people facing persecution for his namesake, who's going through such difficulty to hear, this is how you are blessed and have that be completely unapproachable. It, is, it would be a cruel God who says, this is how you are blessed by, by obeying and listening to what's written in this book if we aren't able to understand it. So there is a part, it is written in part to be clear, to be understandable, that by hearing it and keeping what is written in this book, those people are blessed. And as you read through the book of Revelation, there is so much instruction. There's so much teaching that is clear. There's teaching to, to not compromise, to endure, to persevere, to remain faithful to Jesus, even though when the, that's so difficult to do. There's teaching of what is happening, what God is doing, how all things will be made new. There's so much clear instruction all throughout this book. And as we see what God is doing throughout, how we are called to live in response to that, well, that provides comfort to us to know that God is working now. And this provides transformation for us as we see who this God is that's working all throughout. That inspires us to live for and by and because of Jesus. This clarity produces comfort which, and produces transformation as we look more and more like this God who is at work. When we look at the language of this book, it's not supposed to overwhelm us or confuse us, or, or have us just throw up our hands in despair saying, how could we possibly understand this book? The language of Revelation, the symbols and images throughout are supposed to grab our attention, to wrestle our eyes away from what's going on around us, from the pain and despair of this world, and focus our eyes on Jesus, which we just sang about. A pastor that I listened to used this illustration, and I, th I thought it was terrific. So uh, in, in 1999, uh, these, these two doctors, Simmons and I think it's Shabris, uh, did a test, and they called it the selective attention test. And so what, what happens is it's this video that, that the subject is to watch, and there's, there's two groups of people, some wearing black shirts, some wearing white shirts, and each of the groups are passing a basketball back and forth, kind of mixed, intermingling between each other. And you, as the subject watching this video, are told, count how many times the, the team wearing white passes the ball back and forth. And so you're there, you're, you're watching, and, and you're counting how many passes are going on, and then a person wearing a gorilla suit slowly walks out, stops in the center of the frame, bangs their chest, and slowly walks off. The results that they found is that 50% of the people watching the video didn't see a gorilla. They even said, like, what do you mean, what gorilla? I could tell you how many passes there were. Why would there have been a gorilla there? It, the book of Revelation is, is written like that, that we can be so focused on what's going on around us that we miss what is actually going on. And so the language, the images are there to awaken us to God's presence and work, that we might be so distracted by, by what's going on, by what all of this life might be, that Revelation is written in a way that, that helps us to see that God is working, God is present now. 
And, and so these images that it, it uses, Revelation is written, it's supposed to be like a shout to us that says, look at the gorilla. And that's weird. Look at this dragon. Look, look at this lamb who's also a lion and he's on a throne. Look at these weird beasts. Look at, look at this God though, in the midst of all of that, who is working and present. It, it reveals to us what God is doing. It's not supposed to make us despair. It's supposed to help us see that in the midst of all else, what we might get focused on, it wrestles our attention back to the place that it's supposed to go, back to the God who's active and working now. Which gets to the third point that we'll focus on today. How do we read this book? This book that is confusing, that's supposed to wrestle our, our attention back to God. How do we read the book of Revelation? Well, the first principle that I'll give to us is we read the book of Revelation with an eye to the Old Testament. We, we talked about this earlier with the symbolism that most of it has a uh, connection to the Old Testament, but, but all throughout this book, it has Old Testament roots. So, so the best way to prepare for this series, in addition to just reading the book of Revelation, is to read the Old Testament. Now, I know that's ridiculous. Have you guys read the whole Old Testament by next week? That's, that's crazy. I would never ask you to do that. It, it's just read Genesis 1 through 3 and Exodus and Jeremiah. Obviously, Isaiah, Ezekiel, Zechariah as well. You should probably do Joel and Nahum just to be safe. And then, obviously, Daniel... Uh, but not the whole book of Daniel. I see the fear in your eyes, just chapter seven through 12. It's not crazy. Now, by bringing this all up, I, I don't, don't want you to feel despair. It's, it's not that your homework isn't to go away and make sure you know all these things. They'll help us understand the, series, uh, the, the language used in Revelation. But the homework given is don't be surprised when we're in the Old Testament a lot because that's how we understand this book. And I bring this up ultimately because I hope that this could be a source of encouragement to you. In this book that's so confusing, that's so hard to understand, what better tool is there to understand what God is saying in Revelation than by looking at what God has already said before? How do we read it? With an eye to the Old Testament. And we read it with, with that principle that we talked about before. As we're reading any passage of scripture, it comes with the understanding of we, it is not written to us, but it is written for us. So the implication of that is that what we read in Revelation can't mean for us what it couldn't mean for them. It can't mean for us what it couldn't mean for them. Again, John, to the seven churches that are in Asia, that whatever understanding, whatever uh, clarity, comfort, and transformation we are drawing from the text, it must be the same or similar clarity, comfort, and uh, uh, transformation that was written for the original audience. It would be a cruel God who writes this book to people who are dying and says, hey, 2,000 years from now, someone's gonna understand what this means, so hang in there. No, God is writing to his, this church and all of his people to provide clarity, comfort, transformation, but it can't mean for us what it didn't mean for them at the time. Uh, the third way that we read this book is, is linked to that last bit that I keep saying over and over again. Clarity, comfort, transformation. So how we read this book uh, is done in a way that helps us understand how do we live now. Whatever interpretation that we are drawing from this passage ought to show up in our lives. 
I mean, that's the whole purpose of this genre of literature that, that Revelation is. The, the entire genre itself is done in a way that helps people know how to live now in response to God. Maybe uh, many of you know this, uh, but our New Testament uh, was, was written originally in a very common form of first century Greek. And if you've been around Calvary uh, for a while, you might have picked up that I rarely, 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 rarely reference the biblical languages. I, I think they're important. I, I try to do my own translation before every Sunday. I, I, I'm informed by what they say, but I, I I don't ever want to give off the wrong impression. Like, hey, if you want to hear what God has to say to you, you should probably learn some other languages. That's not true. We have really good English Bibles. So I try to stay away from bringing up the the languages. I'm going to break my rule here. Because there's a word in this, this book that I think could help us understand what is the style of writing that John is doing. All the way back in verse one, it says this. It says, the revelation of Jesus Christ which God gave him to show his servants the things that must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant, John. So right, right there, the, the whole title of this book comes from that second word right there, the revelation. And the word for revelation here is, is the Greek word uh, apocalypsis, which might already give you an understanding of, of other words that we have based off of that word. So apocalypse comes from this word, or uh, we would describe this as apocalyptic literature coming from that word. Now, when we think about apocalypse, maybe we uh, have uh, come to our mind heavily CGI'd movies where someone is running away from volcanoes or earthquakes or, or uh, weather events or AI-enhanced robots, wh- whatever it might be, but the world is ending and for some reason, this person is able to stop the world ending. That, that's, what, that's an apocalypse, right? But that's not necessarily what this word means. What revelation means, or what, what I just wrote it, what apocalypse means is revelation, as it's written exactly in that verse. See, we have really good English Bibles. Uh, apocalypse is a revelation. It is something being revealed. And, and it's a, a genre of literature, apocalyptic literature, was a genre that was really popular at the time. That, that a lot of people would write them, not... not just about any of them make it to the Bible. This is the only one that that is biblically inspired. But apocalyptic literature was a common genre at the time, and they all kind of share similar traits. So let me give you a, a really simplified definition of what apocalyptic literature is. It is using highly symbolic language that gives a revelation to reveal what is true, what is ultimately true, and urges the readers to remain faithful to God. So symbolic language reveals what's true, urges to be faithful to God. And so the idea is using these these symbols, these images to, to pull back this curtain on what looks like is happening on this earth, but to show what is God actually doing and to live in response to that truth. To pull back the curtain on what's going on to show what God is doing so that we can live in response to that. And there's a ton of apocalyptic literature throughout the Bible. A lot of the Old Testament quotations that I gave, they're apocalyptic in nature. But let me share my my favorite bit of apocalyptic literature in in all of the Bible. It comes from Acts chapter 7. So in this, there's this follower of Jesus named, named Stephen. 
And he's on trial for following Jesus. He's before the, the Jewish religious leaders. And, and he gives this incredible argument to them of tracing all throughout the Old Testament how it points to Jesus. And then he turns to those, he's on trial, remember, he turns to those who have him on trial and accuses them of rejecting God by rejecting Jesus. And these religious leaders are grumbling. It says their their teeth are grinding together, that that they're building up in anger. Things are not looking good for Stephen. And in this moment that looks like things are going to go bad, they're they're going to try and kill him. It it looks like there's a moment of loss, like his life is being taken away from him. He is losing something for following Jesus. Stephen looks up. He says, I see Jesus sitting on the right hand of the Father, In this moment that looks like one full of despair and sorrow and loss, the curtains are pulled back and he sees what's true. Jesus reigning and ruling, even if it doesn't seem like it's so in the moment. This gives Stephen the encouragement to go through it to be the first Christian martyr. The curtains are pulled back and he's shown what's true and he lives in response to it. That's apocalyptic literature. I mean, it still leaves the question of how do we read apocalyptic literature? How do we interpret it? So if that's, if that's the purpose of it, how then are we uh, supposed to read, or how do we interpret this type of literature? I know we've had a lot of information, and I know that I'm about to use some terminology that might be new or uncomfortable for us. I, I just ask that you stick with me in this section. Uh, all I'm trying to do is show that there's a variety of ways that people interpret this book. And if, if you've heard of these before and it's been confusing, I just want to do it as simple as possible so that we could under, uh, so that we can understand that there's a lot of different options out there. So how do people interpret the book of Revelation? Uh, the first way that we'll focus on is, is one that's called the preterist method. The, the word is, is less important than, than getting the meaning of what people are doing. So the preterist just comes from a Latin word talking about in the past. And so the preterist method is it sees the book of Revelation describing specific events in the past. They, they took that, that biblical interpretation rule that we had of uh, it, the Bible's not written to us, but it's written for us, and they apply it forcefully to the text. And so they'll say the Revelation is written to these churches, and so whatever happens in the book happened during their lifetime, all in the past. This would include the second coming of Jesus, which they see as either figurative or, or literal happening during the lifetime of these churches. The second way is the historicist method. Uh, and, and it's a less of a common method today, but it's one that was really popular throughout church history. It, it, maybe even some people that you have heard their names of would, would have held to this method. People like William Tyndale and Martin Luther and John Calvin and Jonathan Edwards and Charles Spurgeon, they all held this method of understanding the book of Revelation. It, and it's similar to the Preterists, it describes specific events, yes, but it's events that have already and will uh, someday happen throughout the church history, the church age. And so some events have already happened, some are yet to come. And so kind of the, the part of interpretation is, where are we right now in the book? So some people would say, well, we're at Revelation 7, that's going on. Most people tend to put themselves towards the end of it. That's, that's where they ended up interpreting, like, we're really close to Jesus coming back. But it's this, this figuring out where in the book of Revelation are we currently? 
third method of interpretation is, is probably the most popular today. Uh, I, sh I should clarify, probably the most popular in American churches today. It's not necessarily the case worldwide, not necessarily the case throughout church history, but most people sitting in church on this Sunday will hold to a futurist view. That is this idea that Revelation is talking about specific events that will happen, but they're all yet to happen. Events that will take place soon. And then the third method is, is one to where if the futurist method is, is uh, what most people sitting in church will hold to, the idealist method ends up being what most evangelical scholars or even those pastors in the church will hold to. It, it seems like most, uh, at least a lot of the pastors that, that I've uh, heard from hold to this view. And the idea is that while the other three say that uh, Revelation is talking about specific events, the idealist says that this isn't about specific events. It is the story of good versus evil as it's happening all throughout history until the future event of Jesus coming back. And so which one is the right one to use? You know, I'm not really, I don't really care about that. I, I'm, I, don't, I don't care where we land on this. It's the idea that we've been talking about before, that there's, there's going to be difference here. And that is a good thing. We, we spent the summer looking at what do we believe? What are the truths that we hold to? And what Revelation is talking about, what, what's going to happen at the end of the world is one where there is, we hold to loosely with the understanding that we might be wrong. We hold to specific things that are clear, but we debate biblically otherwise. And biblically meaning with love and from the text of scripture. In fact, it's rare that a person would fit into just one of these camps you might be a partial predator. So, so not someone who's a full predator, so that has all happened, but some things uh, happened back then to make sense to it being written to a church in the first century. So you could be a partial preterist who's then an idealist for the rest of the book of the Bible until chapter 19 when you become a futurist. You can be in so many of these camps. There's a lot of people who fit that criteria. And guess what? They'd be welcome at this church. I, I will just say uh, two things on, on this. While I don't care where you're landing on this, as long as we're landing well on this, I, I will say we, in our doctrinal statement, would reject a full preterist view. What we say the text of scripture says is that Jesus is one day coming back. That hasn't happened yet. So a full preterist view we, we would reject. I would be cautious about a full futurist view as well. Because the, the risk there is that we forget that there was origin, an original audience that this was written to, and, and it can't mean for us what it didn't mean for them. So apart from those two things, rejecting full preterists, caution against full futurists, I, I'm not really bothered by where you land. That as we come together, as we wrestle with this, this text, as we, we argue biblically from the Bible out of love, that that actually helps us to read the Bible better. Uh, which, which will get to my fourth point, and, and I want to end with this, to which there is much rejoicing. Uh, we, we've talked about the, the, the worry that goes into this. We've talked about uh, the style of book this is. We've talked about how do we interpret this. I want to end our time by looking at how do we not read the book of Revelation. We, we talked about how, how do we read it, but I want to focus on how do we not read it. And the first thing that I'll say is one that I've been building to this entire time. We don't read the book of Revelation by dividing over it. 
that, that there is a, a lot of room within our statement of faith for there to be a variety of opinion on this. In fact, I keep referencing the statement of faith. Let me read for you what we say is true as a church about the future. It says that we believe in the personal, bodily, and glorious return of our Lord Jesus Christ. The coming of Christ at a time known only to God depend, uh, demands constant expectancy and as our blessed, uh, blessed hope motivates the believer to godly living, sacrificial service, and energetic mission. I will say it was kind of cool to see uh, as I was, what is the book of Revelation about? Clarity, comfort, transformation. You see clarity, comfort, and transformation in our statement of faith. It's about the personal, bodily, glorious return of Jesus Christ. We think that's clear in scripture. Uh, it's, it's about comfort. Uh, it demands constantly expectancy, and it's our blessed hope. There's hope in this, the comfort of hope. And then transformation motivates the believer to godly living, sacrificial service, and energetic mission. This is what we say is true. And this is something that every Orthodox Christian would say, is, needs and must say is true as well. But there's a lot of room still for vary, variance here. And some might hold to an interpretation that others don't. Some might look at the details in a certain way that others don't. And that is okay. I think we are sharper when we have those differences. But I will say that if, if we are reading Revelation as a way that divides us, if this book becomes a source of division for us, however it is that we read it, if we are dividing over it, I can say emphatically, we are reading it wrong. As Jesus was going to the cross, he was praying in the Garden of Gethsemane, leaving the church. Uh, he, he was praying for his people in a particular way. This is what he says in John chapter 17. It says, I do not ask for these only. So he's, he's praying to uh, first about his disciples who were there with him. So I'm not just praying about my disciples who are here, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. That's you and me. If we have grown to trust Jesus because of the words of the New Testament, he's praying for us right here. Uh, and what is it that he prays for his people to be defined by? I, I, I put a little bit of emphasis on this section. I'm not sure if you could pick up on it. It's a little bit subtle in there. What does Jesus pray for his followers? What does he say should define his, uh, the people who are his disciples? How should we be known as Christians? He says that they may all be one. Just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they may be in us, so that the world may believe in that you have sent me, that they may be one, that Christians are united rather than divided, are joined together rather than separate. This includes how we read the book of Revelation, because this is how we ought to be at all times. Not necessarily one in content. We don't all have to agree on the same thing, but we must strive for being one in nature. And let me say this as clearly as I can. If we are unable or unwilling to do what Jesus clearly tells us to do, clearly tells us to do, then we're gonna have a hard time in this series. If we are unwilling to do what is clearly commanded in scripture, then we are going to struggle with the mystery. If this book becomes a source of division for us, then we are failing to be the people of God. Second way that we don't read this book, we don't read it by worrying. We, we started this whole series, off, uh, this whole morning off by talking, why do we avoid this book? Why do we stay away from it? The, the images in there are hard to understand. 
But it's a book not designed to have us throw up our hands and quit or, or to be lost in despair or, or, or to, not, uh, to, to just feel like there's no way of knowing what's actually happening. I mean, there's so many images in, in this passage and we don't want to get it wrong. But again, the purpose of why it's given to us is comfort, is clarity, comfort, and transformation. We aren't supposed to be reading it with a newspaper next to us trying to see, is it talking about right now? Looking out at the world, just glued to what's happening. Is this revelation? Is this, is this what's happening? We aren't supposed to look at it like it's a crystal ball to try to figure out exactly how things are supposed to be going on. Again, it's supposed to wrestle our eyes away from what's going on in this world to focus on God. The book is much less concerned about how things are happening than the who. Less focused on how than who. It is a book about God, about, how, uh, about the fact that he is working right now. And that in response to the work that he's doing of making all things right, we then live in response to him. As we look at the images that are throughout this book, they're, they're scary, they're hard to understand, but I want to focus our, our, our attention to the images that are clear, to the images that show up time and time again. That as we look at these scary images, look instead at the images that's given to us of Jesus. We see him as standing with his churches, even in the midst of dreadful pain and persecution. We, we see him as the slain lamb on the throne, ruling over all creation. Nothing is outside of his control. We, we see him as, as bringing justice to a world where it feels as time like that word has no meaning. We, we see him as, as a judge, yes, punishing wrongdoing, but redeeming humanity who have gone astray. We see him as the groom, dwelling with his people he loves forever in a new, perfect creation forever. I mean, how scary are those images? I mean, those are the ones that provide clarity, comfort, and transformation. Those are the ones that tell us what the book of Revelation is all about. It's what we sang earlier. The things of the world go strangely dim. As that curtain is pulled back, as truth is revealed, the light of his glorious face. And behold, he is coming soon. Let me pray for us. Father, we are so grateful for this book a book that provided clarity, comfort, and transformation to those churches in the first century and have been providing clarity, comfort, and transformation for every Christian sense. As we go into this book with, with all the details and, and the imagery and, and genres that we aren't familiar with and language that, that's foreign to us, let us focus on what you have here. Let us realize that it's blessed is the one who hears, reads, obeys these words. So let us seek what you have for us, not finding grounds to worry or divide, but finding the strength to live for you in this world when it's so much easier not to. That you pull back the curtains, show us who you are and what you are doing. So because of that, we live and we pray to you and you alone. Amen.